Welcome to the Edges of Lean. I'm Bella Engelbach, and in this podcast, we explore the human and creative side of lean thinking, unusual places where lean thinking is practiced. We meet people who are practicing continuous improvement in many different flavors and styles. So come along with me on a journey to the edges of lean. Episode 28, Continuous Improvement and People Solve Problems. Our guest today is Jamie Flinchbaum, who has helped purpose-driven leaders craft effective, resilient organizations at over 300 companies. Leveraging more than 30 years of experience in helping build over 20 companies, Jamie collaborates with leaders and their teams to bridge capability, strategic, cultural, and systems gaps so they can safely span potential pitfalls and have a purposeful impact on their organizations. Jamie is co-author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to Lean, Lessons from the Road, and is the co-host of the podcasts Lean Whiskey and Happy Heuristics. He's here today to talk about his new book, People Solve Problems. Jamie Flinchbaugh, welcome to The Edges of Lean. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Jamie, I think um, that... You know, you're at the point where you have published quite a few uh, books, and uh, so it's exciting to see you bring out um, a new one. I'm going to hold it up for the folks who are uh, watching this. It's called People Solve Problems, and um, I had the opportunity to take a take a look at it before publication. And so I think of you, Jamie, as being, you know, you're a lean guy, you're a lean Six Sigma guy, and you start right out in this book saying this isn't necessarily a book about lean. And I think that's really cool. And that fits so well in with the edges of lean, because at the edges of lean, I really want to explore all the things that look like lean, but people don't call them lean, or the things that we've incorporated into lean that come from somewhere else. So so why is this not necessarily a lean book? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's, it's uh, for starters, I, I think for, for those in the lean community, you know, problem solving has, has become more of a central theme and uh, a primary push uh, through lean. Um, but then, you know, around the edges uh, or across a continuum, <laughs> there are many different forms of continuous improvement, and there's many different varieties of lean uh, as well. And and so, in many ways, you know, I, I think whether it's you know Six Sigma or Shannon or Kettner Trego or all these other methodologies that are out there, there's still some common lessons to be learned. But but even beyond that, if you know, there's a lot of companies out there that have no formal method. Um, in fact, you'd probably argue there's probably more companies out there that have no formal methodology of, of improvement and problem solving uh, than there are that, that do, but they're all solving problems. And, and so whether they have a formal method or not, whether they have a program or not, whether they have a name for it or not, every organization is solving problems. Every organization fundamentally needs to get better at that. And, and I, I found that, it, at least in, in writing uh, subsequent drafts from the first iteration, that 
the advice for a lean organization with lean problem solving is some of the same key advice to an organization that solves problems that has no tools or methods at all. And, and so I, I really try to serve you know, both ends of the spectrum in, with, with the same fundamental pieces of advice. So Jamie, when you say a lean organization, what, what's your definition? And um, why do you think, do you think we spend too much time worrying about definitions? Well, I, I do. I, I, yeah. Um, you know, when people put, uh, I, I, I tend to come down hard on folks for putting lean on PowerPoint slides, like, oh, here's my lean project. Like, I've been doing this about 30 years. I have no idea what a lean project is anymore. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I ever did, but uh, we use lean as an adjective. We throw it on the front of things. Um, and, and then that, that perhaps gives it credibility. Uh, maybe it's shorthand for something, but in a lot of cases, it's simply jargon or, or confusion. So uh, there, there's a, a lot of different, you know, people will argue at length about there's a right version of lean, there's a wrong version, mm -hmm. there's a Toyota version, there's a something different. Um, but, but fundamentally, I, I see lean as uh, the, the exploration of a, of a set of principles, behaviors, skills, tools, processes, all meant to increase the, uh, the effectiveness of an organization. And, and again, we can split hairs about origins and what terms fall in the definition and what fall out. But I was always, and some sure, sure some people will be critical of me for this, which is fine, but I've always had a more, a slightly more flexible definition, which includes adopting tools and methods from very different areas that we can pull into lean because it's consistent with a set of thinking and can help make it more effective. So. So my, my definition of lean evolves as I think every organization, and, and even if we use Toyota as an example, as I think their definition perhaps evolves as well. Well, exactly. And they have the different problems to solve today than they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 60 years ago. So, uh, yeah, being, you know, a vast international company, there's a whole set of approaches, you know, that you know, a paper A3 in a file drawer, you know, are not going to help to solve. So this is a book then for people who are in the lean community, um, but it's also a book then for people who have problems to solve in their company, right? Whether or not they want to do a lean implementation, right? That we can discuss they could discuss, you know, whether every company should do a lean implementation. So what, what have you seen in organizations? I'll go beyond, you know, businesses, because I know you work with organizations that are not necessarily businesses. What do you see in organizations as a typical untrained problem-solving methods? Um, well, I, I think, you know, so again, it's not always a method. We're just solving problems and, and just uh, sort of churning ahead. Um, but I, I think fundamentally, you know, a couple of common uh, failure modes that we see in, in both, you know, no matter how lean they are or never heard of the term, you know, we, we see uh, 
problems equal or problems are a bad thing. Uh, problems equal failure. And instead of an acknowledgement that we have problems no matter what, uh, the problems are there, whether we acknowledge it or, no, or we don't. And, and so treating problems like a failure essentially leads to a very different response uh, to when that happens. Um, it, it, it's sort of like when, uh, I say this is somebody with very bad knees, but when, when somebody gets a transplant, uh, you know, whether it's you know, artificial knees or organ transplant, you know, the body's like, oh, no, that's something bad. We should attack it. Um, and, and so you know, we think there's a problem. We should attack it uh, or attack the person who exposed it instead of embrace it and engage with it and recognize it as an opportunity to, to, to get stronger. Um, and so that sort of mindset just around problems being a failure uh, in the organization or of a person is, is a pretty common failure mode that needs, needs an adjustment. I think second, it's, it's how quickly we uh, simply focus on executing solutions to problems. Um, I mean, there's a lot of, just to get through the day, you have to just execute sort of known solutions for known problems. And I think that's a whole category. Known solutions for known problems, right? Your gas gauge says empty. You go to the, the, the gas station and fill her up. Your computer's glitchy. You, you don't need a computer science degree to know to at least try restarting it, right? Um, it may not right. work, but it's, a, you know, but it, it, it more often seems to work than, than doesn't. It costs you almost nothing. And so you just execute what is a known solution for a known problem or a probable solution for a known problem. And so even in those, I think it's important to be thoughtful. It doesn't mean you have to be structured. It just means you have to be thoughtful around, all right, do we know the answer to this problem? And if so, then just execute. But then it's also important to then be thoughtful about where we don't and what we do about that. And, and that's the domain where more structured problem solving often thrives, but only if we decide to walk down that path. And, and like I said, the front door of that path is deciding that I don't know what I need to know, that this is a learning opportunity, that, that I don't have the answer to this unknown problem. Uh, and, and so I am going down a pathway of exploration. Um, and, that's, and that's different than, um, you know, it, it, I don't know, whether we use the term learning or not, it is acknowledging that we, we don't know what we need to know. We can't just execute, we have to go learn. And that's to me core to problem solving. And also, as you said, it's, it's it, we don't know what we need to know and it's okay to not know. So if you're in, an, if you're in a place, if you're in an organization where not knowing is, a bad thing, right? You didn't pay attention to your training, or or you didn't follow the rules, or um, you know what what whatever reason. So you have to be able to get to that point also of being able to to say it's it's okay to have a problem. It's okay to admit we don't know how to solve this problem right now, or we we don't know why this problem happened. Yeah, and I think that's that's pretty important. Um, you know, I, I like to say, if, if you already know the answer, then what the heck are you waiting for, right? Just, just go execute, right? And so if, if that isn't the answer, if that isn't the pathway, then, then everything else is a learning exercise. 
Right? Everything that doesn't fit into the known solution for known problems category is by definition a knowledge gap. We don't know what we what what everything we need to know in order to achieve the result that we 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 want, which is honestly why why some of my favorite coaching questions um, in in problem solving are what do we not know and what's the best method to go find out? Very simple questions, right? But not questions that we usually even ask ourselves. We just plow ahead with our tool set and never, never pause to think through that. So Jamie, we kind of leaped all the way ahead from recognizing we have a problem to the, to the, the concept of coaching and coaching. I think, you know, in the book, you talk about leaders as being the ones doing the coach, which is also, you know, a concept that we think of as being a lean concept. Um, and again, in organizations that don't know anything about lead, the concept of leader as coach may be news in the organization, you know, could possibly be big news in the organization. So what do you find in organizations that have recognized that they, they want to do problem solving? Um, how do you help get to that point of, all right, well, you're going to have to help to coach this? Yeah, so so I think you know the idea of leaders as coaches really comes from. Well, I'll say this first: is I don't really care if every leader is a coach. Um, I mean, I do, but I don't think that's the only way to get there. But there are, are two conditions that make that, in my mind, the best solution, the best pathway. One of those factors is that. We want every individual, every individual, to be at least no more than one step removed from an accessible coach. When I say one step, it could be organizational chart, it could be geography, it could be you know what building am I in, it could be what shift am I on, it could be anything to just say, yes. I, I don't have to go very far to find a coach. And what better way to solve that problem than every manager is in fact, a coach, then automatically you are no employee is more than one step removed from a coach. So, you know, that that to me is the ideal state. No individual is more than one step removed, uh, one degree of freedom removed from a coach. And if every manager is a coach, you have solved that problem, which is which is great. The second is that uh, coaching is an investment. No other way to look at it. It's not as fast to pay off as solving the problem yourself. And so what is the time horizon? You, you invest in something that your, your sort of net energy or, or effort goes, you know, or, or value goes down because you're investing and then it comes up and, and crosses zero and pays you off in a positive way. So taking responsibility for that long-term view of that investment of that long-term gain of stronger employees, more capable employees, of what is the time horizon in which I want to cross zero, of what, in which I want to get gains from the coaching efforts and it starts to pay us back. That's, that's very contextual and situational. So who's going to own that whole trade-off curve of investing in coaching versus the long-term vision of the, of, of the gain? And, and to me, in, in a lot of ways, that's the role of, of a manager or a leader is to manage investments. What is the long-term needs of the organization? 
And how do we make sure we have what we need to be successful, not just today, but in the future? And so leaders should be the ones who want to take responsibility for that equation, for that basic you know, uh, return on investment uh, that the organization is making. And so I think that's a second reason that it's not, like I said, it's not the only solution, but having every manager be a coach is the best, most effective solution. I feel like there's a real tug these days in organizations, which has been exacerbated perhaps by the pandemic and people realizing that they don't necessarily have to take what they formerly took from their organization, right? So the idea that, you know, they could go into work and people will tell you what to do and you do it for, for perhaps a wage that may or may not be a living wage. Um, people are starting to look at that and say, no, I actually demand more from my organization. I think we, I think we do know that one of the things that people really want as part of that overall relationship with the organization is development, right? You know, help me develop my skills, you know, help, help me get there. But at the same time, organizations are really crunched, right? They're organized, they're crunched for time. Um, there's, you know, we still have everything that happens in terms of, of quarterly close and, and annual reports, and you've got to deliver and, and the next product launch and, and so on and so forth. So, and then you get a question that, that, right, that frequently arises is, okay, so you tell me there's an ROI from making this kind of investment, but it's going to be really hard to see. Um, so how do we then help organizations? I mean, do you have to, do you, does, is the people who are going to be interested in your book are going to be the people who have already made that decision, Jamie? You know, I've got to, I've got to change this. This is, this is going to be a good way to change it, not just to solve the problems, but also to, to create that, that value for the employees. Um, or is there an argument that, that, because you can't, it's very hard to boil it down to dollars and cents. Yeah, it, it is hard um, because every every organization's landscape of problems is different and, and how, how many they solve and how fast they solve them and who solves them uh, is it, so contextual. You know, turning that into a formula is, is uh, I don't know if it's a fool's errand, but it's not what I want to spend my time on. So, yeah. so I, I do think, well, you know, first I'll say around just employee retention and even recruitment, it's not just that employees want to see uh, an investment in them as, and they want to continue to learn and grow, um, but also they want to contribute. And, and so to me, problem solving is, is, a, is a, a double hit, a double gain in terms of employee retention, because you are investing in people, you're helping them learn, you're helping them develop capability. And you're empowering them to have a greater impact on the organization than they had before because they're taking ownership over not just, you know, maybe significant problems, maybe just their own problems, but they have more to say about those problems than they would have before you've made those, those investments or that permission or, or that shift. And both, I think, lead to retention and ultimately even recruitment. And with every organization struggling for talent these days, yeah, uh, those are those are great. Uh, th those are great things to have in your uh, in 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 your account to to say, yeah, this is why people want to work here versus anywhere else they can go. 
Um, but as far as, you know, who reads the book and are they already interested in that problem? I, I do think if a leader's not even looking for a better way to manage their performance, then I don't, I don't know what even gets them to look at this book if that's right, not yeah. part of what they're doing. But, but, but I, I do think that there's some aspect of the book, although, I, again, I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince people that problem solving is good. But I honestly do think if you do read it, you perhaps see a broader definition of problem solving than what some people are exposed to. They might think that, oh, I'm going to roll out some, because this is what happens, right? Roll out some training tools. I got to pay a lot of money to train a lot of people um, to use a specific tool that only works for some situations that will take a long time for me to build an army of people that can go solve problems. And by the way, we've seen that movie before and it doesn't always you know, generate the excitement we, we thought it would. But, but when you see that, you know what, we're doing this now anyway, we are solving problems every single day, every single employee, but how well, how thoughtful, how deliberate, how creative, how instinctive, how, how well are we doing all of that stuff? And whether we you know, get there one better behavior at a time, one better capability at a time, or come the other way and really enhance our formal problem-solving methods with the right coaches, tools, job aids, and training, and try to lift, uh, lift the army that way. I don't say I don't say it doesn't matter, but it, you know, it, either pathway can help the organization. And you, of course, have to know where you're starting from. But I do believe leaders could read this book and get an appreciation to multiple pathways to make their organization better. Um, there, there's, there is a, there's a fairly common, I'll say lean oriented target state out there that we're trying to pursue, but there's many pathways to get there. And I don't think any, there's probably some wrong ones, but there's no one single right one. And that's, that's a really interesting point because if you go into different organizations and ask them a question about how you solve problems, you're going to hear all kinds of things, right? So you mentioned some of them, you know, well, we're, we do Captain Trago, Trago, or we use A3s around here. Well, which kind of A3s? You know, we, we, have, a, we have our own A3s. We call them something else. Um, you know, the people, are, you know, have eight steps i mean there's so many different ways that that people do that and one of the things that i've observed is that there are we you know within an organization that's doing that there are some people who become the experts right and then they almost become in some cases like um an enforcement army mm -hmm. right so are we doing this in exactly the right way so what kind of principles might an organization look to rather than you know creating this is this is a standard we, we like standards right and we're about enforcing the standard what are, what are some some principles that would be more useful than that yeah so so and i have no problem with with standards and 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 templates and all those things i, I think it's just a matter of where they belong in the hierarchy of things. So, so I think a, a couple that perhaps, I'll give you one that's, that's probably a lot of problem solving students will uh, and kind of get why they're hearing about that. And another that might not be as obvious. Um, 
I think learning deliberately, making problem solving about a deliberate effort to learn is a core behavior that makes uh, problem solving more effective. And, and, and it means that you're curious about every step of the way. You're curious about what is the problem? How do other people see it? How do they experience it? Um, even just defining the gap, of course, we want to say gap to standard is, is a sort of a base definition of a problem statement, but okay, well, is that standard even right? And, and do we need to move the needle? Why are we trying to solve all of the gap or a portion of the gap? Cause we have other gaps to close too. So, okay, well, let's be curious about that. Let's, let's explore that. Now, how much time we want to spend exploring that is all a, a trade-off between, uh, you know, forward momentum and, and, uh, an exploration, but you know what? What is really how does how does this system or process work the way that it does? How are we getting this outcome? Uh, what are very what are different solutions that could help solve this? And what are the trade offs we make when we look at various different solutions? These are all acts of of curiosity, but it means going into problem solving to deliberately learn. And and uh, you know the easiest way to see that you're not getting this is how linearly people treat problem solving, right? They take out the problem solving form and they go A, B, C, D, E, F, and they work their, I don't care, five steps or 47 steps, but they work their way through because it's, they're just completing the steps as opposed to going, oh, here's an idea or here's a question or here's some new insight. And I have to go back and, and back to step one or back to step two and, and re-explore and re-examine based on my new insights. It's not a linear process. It almost never is. It, it's an iterative learning exploration process. And in some ways, I would argue when it's really well done, you're almost simultaneously doing all the steps of problem solving. You might be more focused on filling out one step of the template, but you are, you are exploring, exploring all of them. Um, so I, I think that's... Um, Again, a lot of problem solving will say it's about your training, we'll say it's about learning, but we don't really always set out to learn as a, a deliberate step. On, on, a, on a less obvious standpoint, and one that actually runs a little counter to some of the, okay, here's how many steps in our problem solving process is, the, is integrating intuition, which I believe, and, and you know, going back to, some of the most rigorous analytical scientific minds in history, who I've pulled a bunch of quotes from to help reinforce this point, problem solving isn't entirely analytical. Um, we like to uh, sort of dazzle ourselves that it, it was and convince ourselves that it was, but when done well, there's a, a significant integration of uh, and use of intuition, experience-based intuition, creativity-based intuition, we tap into something more, which is why, why we still need humans, people to solve problems. Why we can't just write the problem statement, feed some data into a machine and they come up with a creative answer because intuition is really useful in problem solving. Whether it's because we're stuck or we're trying to decide where to draw the lines or the boundary conditions around a problem or whether we've really tapped uh, uh, you know, all the potential solutions that, that could support us in, in working on this. There's, there's so many different questions we have to ask ourselves within the rigor of the analytics. 
that that even the most rigorous, you kind of go, well, how'd you how'd you decide to start there? And they're like, well, it's you know they don't have a great way to explain it, but there was experience based intuition behind that uh, that decision. And so how you do that isn't easy. That's why it's more of a behavior that you're sort of always living within problem solving than a step that you go like, okay, step four, be intuitive. Like you can't, you can't integrate intuition that way. You, you have to treat it like an always on behavior throughout your problem solving process. So those are two examples that uh, perhaps run the gamut from the more obvious to the, to the uh, almost sometimes uh, discarded behavior. So, but what you what you're talking about when you're talking about you're talking about curiosity and you're talking about using intuition, you really are talking about things that humans do, right? So you can yes. you can call a Mars rover curiosity, but it's only curious because a human has has uh, suggested where it might want to wander, right? Yeah, and that's and that's why that's I mean that's why people solve problems was the the title I settled on because these are all very very human and very people-oriented steps that make problem solving different than, than, than a lot of other analytical ways to just come up with answers. I think the other thing you really suggest that also is, well, particularly when you're talking about intuition, but also with curiosity, is that the, this is something that the form can really detract from, right? If you were sitting down and say, well, what I got to do is I got to fill out these eight steps or, or I need today, I'm going to work on this section of my A3. What you're taking, what you're not doing is you're not going for a walk and just letting those thoughts move around in your head and letting your subconscious put together relationships that you might not be aware of, right? And or you're not having a conversation with somebody else and, you know, talking about, you know, here's the thing I'm working on and hearing their perspective on it, not in the, not in the way of sitting down and saying, I'd like you to give me input on my A3 right now, but in the way of, you know, here's what I'm working on. And they say, you know, that was something we had a similar situation and I thought about it this way. And, and that is a very different activity from going through the steps of filling out the form or doing the value stream map, right? Um, and even with doing the value stream map, it's not putting the blocks on the wall. It's the things that you think about I've, as you're putting the, the blocks on the wall that really make the difference. But yeah, again, yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Yeah, yeah it, it's, you know, those, those, those things start to, you know, you, you want them to seep into your, your process and integrate, right, uh, with, with the analytical uh, stuff, you know, the, how many times do people go, oh, I was, you know, driving home last night, I had this idea or was in the shower and I had this question or, I, you know, I was out for a hike and and this occurred to me. And and those moments you can't, you know, I mean, if we could boy, imagine as a human race what we could accomplish, but we can't always force those. We have to allow them. And and so this is why I do think that there are some tactical steps you can take with your process to allow for that space, um, uh, to hope for that intuition and creativity to see through. For example, you know, don't try to solve a problem all in one sitting. I mean, there's some troubleshooting and you know, reactive get you know get this problem put away kind of operational stuff that you do in one sitting. But real deep problem solving, don't try to solve it all in one sitting. 
almost never try to solve it with only one person. I think the interactions, even if, even if you don't have to build a team and say, oh, we're gonna have weekly meetings that last an hour every Friday, but you know, interactions with other people is what gets that, gets that flowing. And I think that's, that's super important. And, and then um, I think coaching is one of those other things that really enhances um, because a coach is focused more on the process than, than the, uh, th than on the, the problem itself. And so they can kind of, they can kind of sense when you seem stuck or when you have tunnel vision or, you know, just ask questions that for, sort of force you to pull your head up and look at the horizon a little bit. And so I think coaches, besides actually developing the person, can have a useful uh, sort of process-oriented, reflective-oriented influence on problem-solving itself. Which is something that an organization can deliberately build into how they work right yeah absolutely and 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 so you know i even talk in the book about the difference between cadence-based coaching versus event-based coaching and and i won't go into all of when you choose one versus the other but you know the idea is some organizations like even put formal gates into their problem solving so it's like so they make sure like don't do not pass go do not collect 200 dollars you know, make sure you get coached at this point in your process, because that's a really good leverage point to get that coaching in there before you go too far. And I, I've seen teams that, you know, I'll say that one of my biggest frustrations as a coach is when people bring me their finished problem solving effort. Right. And it's like, I, I kind of liken it to somebody saying, here's my fully grown child. Do you have any parenting advice? It's like, little late like come to me when you've just started come to me halfway through but don't i'm, I'm not here to approve your your a3 uh, i i would li rather help you as you're doing it rather than try to approve of your work at the at the very end give that give that nice blue check and say yeah you did a great job yep that's usually what i end up saying is good a3 some things i would have done differently but, but, but it's 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 all it's just it's not worth spending a lot of time on because nothing's going to happen to it. It's, it's already done. Jamie, you, you say in, in the beginning of the book that you wrote this book, as you said, you, you, for your, your other books, you kind of wrote it for yourself, right? As you were doing that, what surprised you? What did you learn from the process of getting these words on paper? Yeah, it's, it's you know, I, I don't have a great memory. So sometimes it's, it's hard for me to recall when different insights came about. Was it a coaching conversation? Was it writing? Was it on a walk? I, like it's just all, it all comes together and I, I care more about the idea than its own origin. So I sometimes forget where these things come from. But I, I will say that, that one thing that I have a, a much greater appreciation for um, coming from the writing of the book is how much of our management systems that support problem solving are local. Meaning that, you know, we could have a global, when I say global, I mean, everybody in the company has the same A3 template and they're expected to have a daily huddle and they're expected to have a repository and they're expected, you know, 15 things that they're all expected to have everywhere across the company. But on one team, I've got a 24 hour set of problems with different shifts and young leadership 
with inexperience and problems that need to be resolved within hours. And over here, I've got you know 25 year average age employees with sort of just normal working hours and six month time horizons on how problems even start to emerge. And, and so how does my management system as a individual leader fit the context of my local problem solving environment? And so I, I have a chapter on the, the leader as, a, as the architect of the system. And while I do think companies need to at least provide guidance on sort of the, what needs to be included in that system, every leader, every manager, has some responsibility there, has some uh, need to make the system work for them, whether it's design it, whether it's customize it, whether it's tweak it, uh, but they have to take some ownership over their local management system to help make problem solving work. And I think that that all context is local concept and on, on the effect of the management system uh, I, I don't think I had a, a, as, as thorough an appreciation of that before I wrote the book than I do now. It's almost as if there are microclimates that you know that you may Absolutely. be aiming you may be aiming for a climate of something in the company, but there's going to be a microclimate very much depending on who's there and the work they're doing. And Absolutely, there's a microculture, there's a micro system, there's a micro capability. And, and while you know somebody has to be responsible for the company as a whole, we also have to take whatever our own little corner of the world is, our own little corner of the organization, and, and cultivate all of those aspects as best we can. And, ha and have a commitment to do that and, and improving it, right? As, as uh, times change and, and the problems evolve and the problems change. Yeah, I mean, even even throughout the pandemic, I mean, we've we've talked with many organizations, many leaders about, you know, how to how to use lean thinking to help make work from home more effective, and and uh, how to work on uh, you know mental health issues uh, in the organization, stress and 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 disconnection and all those sorts of issues, and and now as people are you know, at various different levels, returning to the office or returning to normalcy or returning to a, a new standard that is not yet normal, but is still operational. Mm -hmm. And how do you think through all of that stuff? So whether it's a container shortage, a staffing shortage, or whatever you're facing, it, it you know, I problem solving is that fundamental capability that makes you resilient to the future yet undefined problems that we are surely going to face. We just don't know what they are yet. Right. But they'll, they're going to they're gonna come along. Jamie, how do people find you? Uh, easiest thing, because it's easier to spell than my full name, is uh, jflinch.com. Um, but they, you know, if they search for Jamie Flinchbaugh on LinkedIn, I believe I'm still the only one there. Um, <laughs> right. they, can, they can find me, uh, find me there as well. And uh, my email is jamie at jflinch.com. So you can always reach out to me there as well. But you're the only one. Jamie, thinking about, you know, kind of where you are now, what is the advice that you give to young people who are starting out? And I know you work with young people quite a bit. Yeah, I, work, I love working with, in particular, college students. And, 
And I think that the number one piece of advice, and this is something I had to learn myself, was take ownership over your own learning journey. Um, sure, there's people with more experience than you. There's people with good advice. There's people who will give you knowledge that you are required to put to use. But it doesn't mean that all of it's right. And it doesn't mean that there isn't more to gain by earning the knowledge for yourself. So take personal responsibility and accountability for your ongoing learning journey. And you know, question things, understand them, build your own belief system. And ultimately, that, that may not pay you back in the first year, but it ultimately will pay you back in the long run. And, and um, you know, organizations will help you, they'll invest in you, but all of that's it's very passive unless you take the ownership over yourself. And I think what that does too, Jamie, is you were talking about having that intuition and intuition is built on multiple learning experiences and 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 learning things perhaps that aren't even in the field you started in so that's absolutely great it's advice it's how, how you practice building insight insights that that make you have a stronger intuition uh because you've you've asked the you're asked yourself the tough questions so jamie's new book is the is people solve problems the power of every person every day every problem it's not necessarily a lean book so you can recommend it to your friends who are not necessarily into lean or continuous improvement but it is really it's a lead book congratulations yeah, on the book jamie thank you it's um i'm glad to get it out there and glad to have written it and and we'll we'll, we'll looking forward to see how people respond all right well let us know because so you can you can reach out to jamie on linkedin or email him uh you can uh also uh, uh make comments uh anywhere you watch or listen to the edges of lean and uh thanks so much jamie for for coming out to the edges of lean with me Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This is Bella Engelbach, and I'd like to thank Jamie Flinchbaugh for being my guest on the Edges of Lean. What problems are you going to solve? We'd love to hear from you. Find Jamie at jflinch.com or on LinkedIn. Find me at leanforhumans.com or on LinkedIn or comment wherever you watch or listen. No matter how you travel to the edges of lean, your ratings, reviews, and comments are greatly appreciated. Please join me in exploring more of the edges of lean. There's a lot to learn. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com. You'll find more podcasts and videos with lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelberg. This is a Lean for Humans production.